you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome everybody to the next edition of Bare Naked Money. And we are super uber mega excited that we have the man, the myth, the legend, Jeff McDonald from uh, Edgepoint here with us. And I'll throw it over to Josh for the official introduction with, with all the, the, the credentials and accolades that we can, we can lay at uh, Jeff's feet. Well, this is the first time we've had a blueberry farmer on the podcast. So we're super excited about that, but more officially known as partner founder and portfolio manager at Edgepoint Wealth Management. Jeff has a long history as a portfolio manager in the financial industry, not just with Edgepoint, but with uh, other firms prior to that. And since lodging Edgepoint, I think in 2009, uh, Jeff and his team have, have been pretty successful at delivering good results for, for their clients, us included. So we're super excited to have Jeff on the, on the podcast today. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be here. So, so, so Jeff, our, our clients think that mutual fund managers can actually move objects with their, just their brain. Like, are you guys able to do magic like that or are you, are you more human? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think eventually if you, as you spend more and more time in the business, to be quite honest with you, you realize that you move nothing. You realize that, uh, you control nothing, to be quite honest with you. And, and it's not until you get to that point, and I'm happy we can get into that probably through the podcast here, but it's really not you get that point as an investment professional and a portfolio manager when you realize that it's other people that set prices actually, right? It's not you. And there are other things that are beyond your control, to be quite honest with you, that you just don't control. And when you come to work every day, realizing that the humility that comes with that as well. Uh, actually helps you probably avoid mistakes, to be quite honest with you. So we're, we're the furthest from, uh, magicians, um, and there's, uh, there's no magic to what we do at all. There's, there's process, but not magic. Jeff, you're, you're exceeding my expectations already by taking an absolute garbage question and turning it into a real answer. That's fantastic. That's nice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's amazing. So, so maybe, and Josh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll preempt or maybe start from the beginning as it were. Can you, can you describe what it's like to start a career path? Maybe speaking to your experience or what a typical career path is for somebody who ends up sitting in your chair? Wow. I guess there are typical career paths, but there doesn't have to be. So many of us have a business degree. Honestly, you don't need a business degree. I've always said, gosh. The four years that people take to get a business degree, you could, you can learn it with a few books and a little bit of experience. I mean, that's the reality. So, so ideally there's, there's really no set path and, and there's no set, there's no set to do list, to be quite honest with you. And even if there was a defined set path where we walked through, this is what a perfect analyst would, would be and had the perfect background. There's no guarantee that that analyst will grow and evolve into a good decision maker or a good portfolio manager. There's a big difference between being a good analyst and actually making good decisions, right? Like as a, as a portfolio manager, managing money, we are making like one decision after another, after another, after another, after another, it's a series of decisions over your entire career. And, um. And, and there's a totally different set of, um, 
competencies that are involved in, in those decisions than anything that you would find in a set career path. If you know what I mean, right? Like in terms of it, just because you have a CFA, it does not mean you, you know how to make decisions. Just because you went to the best business school in the world doesn't mean you know how to make decisions. In fact, that will work against you because you'll think you'll have too much confidence and you, you, you won't look around the corner if you think you came from the best business school. So, so if I step back, I, I think I can look at my background. I can tell you my quick story, but everybody's story is different. Everybody that we found here, we found from a different place. We found at a different opportunity. More times than not, they find us. Uh, we love finding individuals that have passion. I feel like I'm, there's no secret sauce here, but I feel like that's the one. And I, I, I regret even mentioning that because now anybody that listens to this podcast is going to claim they have passion and then they're going to get through the first screen. But the truth is, it's no, there's no stop. There's no end to this business. It's, it's like 24 hours in a way. You're always thinking about it. And, and if you're not passionate, if you don't love it, you just can't succeed. So passion is very important, but outside of that, the correlations are much broader in terms of where they came from. It, it, I don't know if it's worth walking through my path I mean, because it wasn't a typical path. I grew up in Prince Edward Island. I did not know what the stock market was. I was intimidated by business. I didn't have any family members, honestly, really in business at all. So I went into science, did not like science at, at university and noticed some, some friends that were taking business courses. And to be quite honest with you. The business students didn't have Friday classes. That, that first year student <laughs> was probably the fascinating thing that I, that I noticed while I was in my physics lab on Friday afternoons. So, I mean, I was a scholarship student to the university, but I didn't really have a passion for science and mixing one liquid with another chemistry lab. It was turned, it would turn green and everybody would be all excited. I'd be like, I don't really get it. Like, I don't know why that's interesting for me anyway. And. So by fast forward, there was a couple key events for me, but I think for everybody else, it's different. Um, I had this one course and it was called finance two in my third year. It was my second semester, third year. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And the professor started talking about the efficient market. And for those that are familiar, basically what that means is the stock market is very efficient which means there's a bold host, there's all this information that collectively, when you add it up together, effectively all the information about each individual star is already discounted in the price. And there's no advantage to doing any work. There's no advantage to actually doing analysis. If you just own the stock market, the index, for example, you'll do quite well and you'll do better than the average manager that's like actively trying to do better than people that don't try, right? Like it's, it was a bizarre concept where the professor basically made fun of active stock managers. And he said, a monkey throwing darts will do better than these professional managers that spend their whole day trying to pick good businesses that will outperform. And it, it just seemed odd to me. So uh, I read a couple of books that summer and the cross that time period, I came across a compounding chart and I don't know, it's the most powerful thing to put in front of a young person is what I think Einstein, JP Morgan, many people have been quoted with saying the eighth wonder in the world is compound interest and, and the magic of compounding one's capital over 
30, 40 years. And when you're 20 years old and you look at the, the magnitude of what, you know, compounding capital can turn one's money into that and this bizarre concept that you're telling me that if I dedicate my life to this, I can't beat a monkey. Like I can't, I can't do better than a monkey throwing darts. And if I do better than a monkey throwing darts, then I can compound capital and make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, even starting out with thousands. The whole thing seemed bizarre to me. And, and from that moment, I frankly dropped all interest in almost anything else and just pursued a potential path to hopefully the end of this business. And, and from there, from there, there's a lot of different things that I would say would be a path for a young individual. For me, it was enrolling in the CFA. Uh, as soon as I graduated from undergrad, and I think most young people do that now, back then it was more rare. Um, this would have been, this would have been over, this has been over 30 years ago now. And, uh, just ship resumes off like crazy and get in front of people, but that didn't work. <laughs> I was in TEI and nobody in Bay street really seemed to care about a resume that had grass cutting and painting experience on it. So, so I, I decided to do an MBA because it was path to maybe just get a bit more maturity and, and delay, delay having to go into the real world and take a job that I didn't want to. And from there, and if I look at the, all the people that we've hired at Ontario teachers in the nineties, Trimar for the decade that I was there from the late nineties to 2007. And now it's worth those that really want to get in this business that are truly passionate or continuous learners. They find their way in, even if we didn't hire them, but we were close, you see them in the business. They get in as analysts because the passion shows up. They write research reports on their spare time and put it in front of you. I'll never forget one interview tied as my business partner. Now the interview was cut short. I wasn't sure. I wasn't really sure if Ty had all the background necessarily or enough. If, if, if you knew enough about the business or if you really wanted to get in for the right reasons, I really wasn't sure it was a funny interview. And he started reading books and sending me book reports. And then Ty would write a research report on a precision drilling. This is back in 97, I think. And then send me a research report. And, and those that are persistent, that demonstrate a passion, they, they find their way in for sure. Uh, and I'm not sure if that was directly the, uh, the question, but, but there's no typical path. You don't need a business degree. There's so much available for a young person today, uh, so much more than there was. Uh, when I was younger, I mean, when I was younger, it was, it was the library and, and some investment books, but there's no internet. So just think about all the podcasts and, and the blogs today on top of all the wonderful books and investors you can follow. It's quite exceptional. So that, that takes my mind in a lot of different directions, Jeff. Uh, but I want to come back to one of the first things you said about, you realize that a lot of, a lot of what goes on in, in the world and the markets is out of your control. I, I'm curious, is it? like a slap in the face where one day you wake up and you realize, holy, like, I don't, I don't control any of this. Or is it sort of a slow creeping suspicion over time that you, you slowly come to realize that when you get punched in the gut enough times, then you thought you knew something and you didn't. Yeah. No. So I think if you think about the evolution of, uh, of an analyst, so it almost goes back, Josh, to, to, to continuing that last, the last question is, okay, you get in the industry. You're now an analyst. Okay. You really don't know anything. You think you do. That's the funny thing is you have more confidence as a 24 year old entering the business than, than the 50 year old portfolio manager. You're, you're, it's a, a 
bizarre thing that happens in our business, right? And the reason for that is like you start as an analyst with covering maybe one company, right? So when I started, I was given one business at Ontario Teachers and it was Make Believe Foods was the first one, for example. And you're basically sent away for a month, like you're there, but you are giving all the access and resources that Ontario Teachers has to analyze Maple Leaf Foods. You are given all the old research reports that other analysts of the history of teachers have written as a, as a model for what you're trying to look at. And you are given all the access, whatever you can get, and you're consuming everything about the industry, old financials, you're building a model. And you're actually getting to know that company over the course of that month, when you're writing a report, you actually get to a point where you know that business actually probably better than almost anybody, really outside of people within the business, because you're doing nothing but one company for, let's say a month writing a report. Sometimes it takes longer than that. And again, this is my experience. This is what we have done when we were at Trimark, when we trained analysts, this was the training that we went through and the training that we put people through at Trimark at, at teachers when I was a, a PM. And then this is what we, we do at Edgepoint. So this isn't necessarily the whole industry in terms of how a young person starts out. But when you're an analyst, you're focused on this narrow thing and you end up knowing it better than anybody else. And you have a confidence level that's probably higher than it should be. And not only that, you have this bloody model. And I don't know if you know. If, all, if, if everyone listening knows what I mean by a model, but, but it's a spreadsheet in Excel, which basically has all the historical financials, right? The revenues, the revenue per widget, the margin per widget, or whatever it is you're making, and all the various different returns. And you can analyze the history and take a look at it. But the point of the model is to make pro forma forecast, right? What will the business look like in the future? And then what will it be worth? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to buy a business right today or less than what the stock would be worth in, in the future. So you have this bloody model and the model, right? You put in your base case, you're staring at it all day and it spits out an IRR, it spits out a future value. And you start getting this undeserved confidence in a way, because the model's telling you something. It's telling you what the, the value is. It's telling you what the IRR is. And the truth is like, it's telling you nothing other than what the IRR is with that one assumption that you put in or the multiple assumptions. But when you're an analyst and it's all you have and it's all you know, you're almost, um, you feel like you're under control. Like what you're, what you're doing is actually pretty, pretty narrow and small in the whole grand scheme of things. It's, it's, it's your entire focus. It's just that one company, right? So that, that's, that's the, the beginnings of it. And, and over the course of time, Right. As, as you, you have these experiences, time passes, you start focusing on things that you don't control, which are kind of more important, right? You realize that you don't control management of the company. So that model that we had tons of confidence in what the IRR was and, and it made you almost feel like there was a high chance of that one outcome, which is ridiculous when you think about it, you, you start realizing that, geez. This management team is going to make a succession of decisions and investments and recruiting good or bad people or whatever it might be. And they have competition or they're going to react or not react to various different things that are totally unpredictable that you don't have in your model that you can't control. And, and you have to admit that. And if you don't admit that, if you don't understand that, 
if you actually think that your model's telling you, you know, you like it because it gives you that control and certainty, I, I think it could be dangerous. So you focus on things like the management team, the quality of the business, the change of competitive behavior. You start seeing and looking for red flags that you've seen before, right? Analogs, right? Analogs in the past um, that start recurring, right? That that weren't in the model, that aren't in the model, that you just can't find in the model. So anyway, that's that's probably the best description if I if I go through that is is that as as time passes over your career, you start realizing that we're really making decisions. We're making decisions with not a full picture ever. Um, all the information that's possible to consume. And even if you did, you still can't anticipate or predict necessarily everything that's going to happen in the future. So you have to start relying on like a process, right? You have to start relying on, um, on, on processes that, that keep you away from bad decisions, at least at a minimum, but hopefully start really increasing the probabilities of making good decisions. So, so Jeff, just to paraphrase, because I always refer to CFAs lovingly as the smartest, most irrelevant people that I ever talked to. Uh, largely based on the fact that they love their models and they get really excited by models. And you've just done a very eloquent job of describing the limitations of models. So for our listeners, just to, to maybe summarize that there's no one equation that you can calculate that leads to a guaranteed outcome that is an investable idea. Uh, that's, that's not a trustworthy way of approaching this equation. Would that be a fair? paraphrase it it's true i mean i i, I walk through just specific things on business like decisions management's going to make or decisions competitors are going to make two years out or a year out that you just can't capture but we didn't even talk about well what is the economy going to look like or where would interest rates be and you just start realizing that the world is much bigger than what you can possibly um, put in, in in any one model for sure but when you're an analyst and you start out that's all you have and, and, and then your, your, uh, your life evolves with, with experiences, right? I mean, and that's, that's the context that you end up having over the course of time or these series of experiences that can start leading you towards uh, a series of better and better decisions, or at least less bad decisions for sure. So is there a framework or is that, is that even uh, too silly of a question? Is it? Is it when you say about your experience, like your experience over time leads you to understanding you know, situations better, perhaps, uh, and having a process. Is there a useful framework? Like, you, know, you still have analysts yeah. that are still doing those reports. So they're still, they're, they, you have to do the model. So there's, like, <laughs> you, you have okay. to. there's some irony there, Jeff. There's some irony in, in still doing the there model. Is. There is. Like, I, I, I believe like, you have to do the model so you can understand the business. Like you're trying to understand what the drivers are in the business, right? Like, so if margins went up hundred basis points, how much more is the business worth? If margins go down. You have to have you like with regards to what potentially could happen. And more importantly, the implications of those various different things. I, you have to have a view on a business in terms of what you think it possibly could do in the future, right? Like, of course, like you're, 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 you're like, I think I, I probably should step back a, a bit, but like. Our goal is to find ideas about a business, but what that business could look like in the future that, that, that isn't discounted in the price today. So in other words, buying growth for free or 
just buying a business for less than what it's going to be worth in the future. Every year we want to define that. So, you know, if we had an idea that a company was going to move into a new market and launch those products in a new market, belief they had a chance of being successful, then you have to model it to, to say, well, what would that be worth? Maybe it's not material. Like you have to do the work and say, oh gosh, even if they did that, it only adds a, a buck in value to the share in the stocks at $50. Like it's not material. So it, it, it gives you that insight, but it shouldn't give you the certainty that, that that's what the future will be. So I think the framework is the, 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 the process, right? And, and the process then is a couple things, right? So our goal certainly is to avoid error, but there's a process in that. Okay. So let me step back. We are looking to buy a business. So I'm talking about the equity side here. We're looking to buy a business. Okay. Well, what kind of business do we want to buy? So the first thing is I know we invest in the stock market, but a stock is not a stock. It's a, it's an ownership stake in a business. Part one. Part two is once you realize it's not a piece of paper moving up and down as a business, now you're going to focus on the long term, right? Like you're not going to buy who buys a business for two months. I know people buy stocks for two months, makes no sense, but that's not a process because it's a business. That's not a process buying a business every two months. Nobody can do that. So, okay, now we have a long-term view and we're looking at a business. So now once you have a long-term view and you realize it's a business over time, you build a process and learnings and understandings, realizing that it sounds really silly. A good management team's better than a battle. Okay. Right. So who is the management team? What are their incentives? What decisions have been made in the past? What type of talent have they recruited to the organization? And, and same type of questions about that. What is the business? Like, what are the competitive advantages over time that if you choose to buy a stock that you're going to make the exception, you don't necessarily think management's all that great, but there's these other reasons why you think it should be good over the course of time. That's how bad decisions are made. Okay. So you could really love the business thinks it's cheap and not like management. Be careful. Right. That's so, so the process is managing. The business, right? The competitive advantages like of that business and the mode around it, so to speak, or actions of competitors. You study all the competitors because at the end of the day, they're competing every day for customers, for your customers or your business. You know that over time that when you fall in love with the business and the management team and you think the competitive dynamics are good, but you ignore the price that you pay for that business, like you say, ah, I know it's expensive, but. Come on, like that's where you get in the trap. So price matters, right? So, so the process is, is everything that you would do, Colin, if you weren't given millions of dollars and told that's the last millions of dollars you have to look after your family for the rest of your life and you can buy one business, it's what anybody would do. What kind of business? Who's the management team? Can the business grow? Will competitors destroy it? Oh, and what is the price? And let's make sure we, we buy that wonderful business, wonderful energy at a price that's not already discounting all that growth. And, and that's really like, you need systems, you need a process, you need to reduce the odds of mistakes. And, and, and that is, I think what works like, like the history of capitalism will not ever show you that a 
business that was purchased with a great management team that had a chance to grow, that had competitive advantages, that was bought for a, like a, a low price relative to any reasonable future. You always make money. Like that's capitalism. If you can do that right. Of course, there's so many uncertainties in there that where you can still make mistakes because you, you misassess the quality of management, you misassess the business. And, and that's, that's the ongoing monitoring of the business, uh, of its competitors that was really uh, required. Right. So, but you know, so we, we make decisions in a series of decisions and, and we have to be honest with ourselves. Everybody should a portfolio manager ever, ever comes to you. They, they believe they see the future and they have tons of confidence. Beware, because you never have a full set of information. You never have a full, the full context. And it's why I think you need to have these systems and processes in place that are learned over time that, that, that work and they keep you out of trouble. And then we have a good process. You can, uh, I think, you, well, I mean, history has shown that uh, you can do quite well. With it. You look at last 14 years at edge point, but if you look at where we were before, um, very, very pleasing returns and have outperformed uh, over any really reasonable long period of time. So Jeff, you're giving us some insights into the way that you actually think about building your portfolios and, and making investment decisions. And I had a client ask me not too long ago, when you talk to these managers, we've had probably a dozen or two dozen conversations with Edgepoint and, and your team uh, over the, the, the years. How much do you guys actually share your secret sauce with us? Because he's skeptical. He, he, he kind of asked it uh, from a point of skepticism, like, hey, they're not actually going to give you a look under the hood, are they? So let me ask you the unfair question. How transparent are you and your team with, with us and other uh, managers like us uh, about how you actually go through your process and make your investment decisions? No secrets, us. Like, uh, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, there's so, yeah, there's no secrets, us. I mean, this is, that's what's so funny about our business. It's really unfortunate. Like what I just went through earlier of like the process, right? Really like what's secret about that? There's not, it's, it's the environment that allows one to deploy a time-tested approach, which is what I went through in terms of business. And that's, that's theoretically the secret sauce, but it's, do you, are you in an environment or do you have the emotional or behavioral ability? to follow that investment approach. And if you do, you will outperform over time and you will do quite well. Like, look, there is no, there should be nothing secret about a stock is not a piece of paper, but ownership stake in a business. That's what they are. That's what the stock market is, is for business people to meet and exchange ownership shares of a business. So that's not a secret. There, there should not be a secret that a business you should have a long-term review if you own a business. Like I, I don't know any successful business person that buys and sells businesses every two months or seven months or six months, or even every year. Imagine buying and selling a business every year. If your neighbor did that, you know, they're going to lose their shirt at some point. So there's nothing secret there. Jeez. Like it's not, there's no secret that we should buy a good management team. Like, can you imagine if somebody came in and said, we should buy a company that has a weak management team? or a bad business with declining margins that's not growing at a dumb price. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> so, so it's right there. It's, it's all there for anybody to do. That's what's unfortunate about our business. Actually, it really is unfortunate. Like it's right there. Anybody could do it, but people can't. And, and that's, that's the reality. And I'd love to go through that. 
like, like why we can't do that, why so many can't do it professionally and, and as individuals. And it's why many individuals probably should have a financial advisor that holds their hand at times that maybe keeps them from making bad decisions, but even institutionally or professionally, it's just so unfortunate. If you look at so many professional portfolio managers that just don't work in a, in an environment that allows them actually to do what I just said, they're just not allowed. They're not able to, it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre set of circumstances as our industry. I think as our industry has evolved, right. And I, it, you could look at it from many perspectives. You could start with the definition of risk as an example. Okay. What is risk? If you're a business person, okay, we're just business people that effectively go out and buy and buy and own businesses for our clients effectively, right? What's risk? Risk is losing money. The opportunity, the chance that you could be wrong, that you could make a mistake, that your investment could be worth less. That's risk to any business person. And, and, and when you're approaching life as a business person, buying a business, that's how risk should be defined. But it, the investment world, there are two measures of risk that are way more important for some reason, and they shouldn't. One of them is volatility. Okay. Volatility is how much a stock or whatever goes up and down, up and down, up and down over the course of whatever, a day, a month, a year. And it's just not risk. It is risk. If you don't know the value of what you own, cause that's scary, like, but cause something's moving down, but you don't know what you should do because you don't know what it's worth. It is risk if you're over levered for sure. Right. I mean, if you have a lot of debt and your the asset goes down, then that's risky or it's risk. If your time horizon is short, but you shouldn't buy a business, your time horizon is short. But if, if those aren't the case, volatility is the furthest thing for risk. Remember, we don't set the price of a stock. Other people do. You're the one that should know what a stock is worth, a business is worth. That's our job. We should all know that. So if our job is to know what a business roughly is worth, have a view on that. And other people are acting crazy, causing the stock to go, let's say the stock was at 30 bucks and you believe it's worth 60 in a couple of years. And they want to panic because I don't know, there's inflation or the feds raising rates or whatever it is, you know, the stock's going to be at 20, but nothing's changed in terms of your assessment of that business. Is that risk that you can buy some stock at $20? It's not risk. So the ups and downs are not risky if you're a business person that has liquidity. And then the, 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 and, but, but, but volatility creates emotions and it, it causes, it causes behavior to, um, work against the, the deceptively simple approach of what I walked through, right? Good management, good business that can grow purchased at a reasonable price. And then the next risk is benchmark. And, and this might be less understood by the average investor out there, but this is the classified risk that almost all professional managers are benchmarked or managed against. Risk is being different from a benchmark, right? The index, right? The TSS index or the S and P five either. And, and this is how. Portfolio managers are often compensated almost universally, frankly, not at edge points, but and they're compensated based on beating the benchmark. And when you're all of a sudden compensated and your bonus is based on beating a benchmark, your next question becomes what's in the benchmark. 
And so all of a sudden you're coming to work every day as a portfolio manager and your risk is being different from the index. That's the risk, right? Being different from, from an index. So if there's a stock in there, that's 5% of the index and you don't have a view on it, like you're not sure. If you put 5% of people's money in it, you now have taken no risk. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, because now you're not different from the index. So now that thing that you don't know that you're not sure about, you've immunized it. You've taken it away. It can't affect your bonus, so to speak, or, or your difference. And that's, uh, but you just put somebody's money in it, 5% into something that you don't even have a view on. Yeah, that is our world. That is the, the world of portfolio management, this bizarre system where the benchmark is deemed to be the measure of risk and deviation from that can be a career risk for an individual portfolio manager. And not only that, but there's so many big and powerful firms today where the distribution is just like the money's just coming in. So it's like, don't be different. My gosh, like, don't be too different because the money's coming in anyway. So there's no secret sauce. What I went through were like all day long, we can uh, talk about it and, and, and explain what we do. I think importantly, we really do work in an environment where like we own this business. We've been influenced dramatically in our experience at our previous shop at, at, at Trimer with Bob Kremble, who's a co-founder here at Edgepoint, but was also a co-founder at Trimer. 99 and 2000 is a great example where we were very different from the index, not only technology uh, companies, tech, telecom, and media back then in, in a crazy bubble. And, and we had a choice, which was invest money in businesses we didn't believe in, or we thought were expensive so that we can keep people happy. So money wouldn't leave or let people leave who just want their money to go somewhere else because we have to be fiduciaries to those who still trust us. And, and that experience of avoiding something that became 50% of the benchmark, the career risk that was involved in that, Trimark was lost. I mean, the business was sold because the public shareholders thought that portfolio managers had lost their way because they were unwilling to buy what was obviously the future, which we couldn't because we couldn't justify it based on the process that we followed, right? The price component wasn't there on these businesses. But you go through an experience like that and many more and having a strong investor in the corner office and being an investor led like we are here, where you, you, you realize that all that other stuff doesn't matter. At the end of the day, your flows don't matter. Your asset levels don't matter. If, if you don't do the right thing for the investor, you're, you're taking the, the biggest risk of all, which is frankly a, a possible loss for them, which you just don't want to do, but that's unique. I mean, our definition of loss is, is totally different from the industry. And if you define loss as the chance of losing money and not benchmark and not at volatility, it's the first step, but it's only the first step in something that is not a secret sauce, frankly, but the uh, first step in, in at least achieving pleasing results over the course of time. And then past that, it's, it, it's so many other series of decisions that by no means are easy where it helps to work with uh, a great group of other individuals that all have different perspectives, where we all get to question everybody. Like we all have our biases. Like, I mean, but after, after getting the definition of risk, right, 
you then have to attack the, the thousands, but let's just say tens of tens of biases that we all have as investors that could potentially make us, that could keep us from making good decisions. It also get in the way of a very deceptively simple investment approach. There's really, there's, there's no secret sauce to this. There's just so many pressures in our business that keeps people from being able to deploy it, whether it's behavioral biases, the institutional imperative, which is this benchmark risk thing. And it's why so many people find the stock market confusing, why they don't get pleasing results is something gets in the way of something that should be much easier. Well, Jeff, the, the, the market for secrets are outstrips the, the, the supply of secrets. And, and there's, there's, so there's always going to be those who, who are coming forward with a perceived secret. Uh, but as I was once told, a lot of people watch hockey. So there's, there's a difference between watching something and being able to execute it, which I think is what you're alluding right. to. And, and I knew this is how this, this podcast is going to go. You've, you've drifted deep into the world of, of Edgepoint, which we love. And it's, it's what you live and it's your passion. But let me, let me drag you outside of that for a second, because you've alluded to some of the other players out there and perhaps it takes two sides to make a market. So obviously you're trading against, or you've got a, a party that you're trading against. A lot of the industry tends to be based around what people are willing to buy at a moment in time. So there's a lot of product that gets manufactured, whether that's cryptocurrency or weed or things of that nature, who all have portfolio managers who are hired to fulfill mandates and things of that nature. Uh, do you have a sense of what percentage, and you sitting from your desk, what percentage of the industry is purpose created just to meet the perceived demand versus the percentage of the industry that is more fundamentally focused as you've described your process at Edgepoint? Well, look, there, there, there are great portfolio managers at lots of different uh, companies across this country, but most companies across this country that would be in the mutual fund business, I guess, as a starting point, they've all morphed to sales and marketing companies. And, and that's not, that's not a new secret, right? There was a day when there was a crumble at a trimer and a condo at a condo, a templeton at a templeton, a goodman at a dynamic and go on to the, the original roots of so many of these businesses and they were, they were investment led. There was an investor in the corner office and that doesn't mean that an investor in the corner office of that company can't make mistakes, but it does mean that when products are launched for dissemination for sale, that there's an investor there that says, yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good product that has a chance of making money. And so now over the course of our, the, this industry of Canada, where did they all go? Where are these companies? Who are they owned by? It's, 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 it's not that they, they are purposely doing bad things, but not suggesting that, but I'm not factually incorrect saying that they're sales and marketing companies, they're financial superstores and, and the job is to grow assets. The job is to. Uh, I free all public companies. So the job is to grow assets, get bigger, grow management fees, grow value for the owners, the shareholders of that stock or that business. So then, so then if you imagine what it would be like, you just, just picture yourself at any of these companies, January 1st of year, beginning of the year and the year starts again. And what are you told to do? You grow the business, 
So it's like, okay, how do you grow the business? If you're, uh, your background is in sales or marketing or operations, which is generally runs the businesses. It's okay. Uh, people, crypto, everybody wants cryptocurrencies. Maybe we can raise a crypto fund or this is popular or that is popular. So, so fund launches are highly correlated to what people will buy. That's the reality. Like why would somebody launch a product if there's people who won't buy it? That's how it is viewed, unfortunately. And so the, the products that people are likely to buy historically, unfortunately, are products that have done well recently. And that is just a sad reflection of reality of our business that it seems easier for people to buy something that has gone up recently because it gives them confidence that it will keep going up or something. I don't really know. Versus a product that maybe is down where there's an investment rationale behind it. You don't see that in our business, right? Where, hey, <laughs> this entire industry is down at 30%. Or forty percent, and we think it's very attractive, and we're launching a, a fund. Who does that, right? So, like we've done that. We launched an energy fund at the end of two thousand nineteen, and a Canadian energy fund in the industry because we thought there was an investment rationale behind it. Didn't you guys launch Edgepoint like in two thousand and eight? Wasn't that the? Uh... We did. We did. Yeah. Okay. Just I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think I think the choice. It's funny in the fall of 2008, there was a, obviously the credit crisis and most advice was saying, wait, like, don't, you're not going to raise much money right now. So wait, like, wait, like nobody's like, just wait and wait until things look better. And then that would be a better time. And I said, well, better time for what? That would be a better time to raise money, but prices would be higher. So it would not be a better time to make people money. And so it's a perverse reality of, of our business that, uh, that, that, um, certainly is proliferated industry-wide. Is there anything that you, you know, given an audience of retail investors who still think that you move things with your mind? You could probably ask what makes a good portfolio manager. We've probably, probably addressed elements of that. Uh, I think there's there's given there's a series of decisions that you make as a portfolio manager, there's how you work with the team and there's, there's putting in a process to, to just try to ensure you're, you're, you're avoiding various different biases. Like we, we addressed elements of that. Like we could certainly go deeper. Maybe, maybe that'll be for another time on some of those other topics. <laughs> oh, now that, that would be thoroughly exciting. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll get some feedback from our listeners on this conversation and, and see what they feel that we've uh, potentially have left out and maybe we could, uh, set up around two. So Jeff, listen, seriously, thank you. This is, this has been fun. Oh, I guess one, one more follow-up question. How are berry prices this year? <laughs> I actually don't know. I was PEI for about three days this summer, but I'm heading down for Thanksgiving. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll check in then. Some of the boys here are doing pretty good this year. They're pretty happy. So anyway, just thought I'd check. But seriously, this is as enjoyable as the first conversation I had with you back somewhere around 2010-ish. Uh, it's always a thorough joy to have a conversation. You offer really good stories and insight as to, to, to what your world is, and we really appreciate that. We've been longtime fans, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, appreciate it, Jeff.
This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or the solicitation of an offer to buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.